morning. My name's Anne. I'm going to be reading to you from Matthew 12 and then from 1 John 4. So the first four verses from Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now to 1 John 4, verses 7 to 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Thank you, Anne. And hello, everyone. It's really great to have you with us uh, this morning. Uh, my name's Wal. I'm the senior minister here at Narrenburn Camry Anglican Church. And I'm uh, really glad that you're with us today, especially, I guess, given the topic that we're looking at. And um, I know there were some teasers on that before. Um, 
So if you've been here, as Tim kind of alerted us, we've had this series which we've called Encapsulate because what we're trying to do is to sum up and, and to distill and to encapsulate uh, what we would love under God to become more and more the marks of our church. And uh, our topic today is about us being a family, the family of God, in fact, which is committed to loving each other sincerely and sacrificially. So us being a family, the family of God that is committed to loving each other sincerely and sacrificially. I don't know how you feel when you hear that we're thinking about us being family to each other. Uh, perhaps if we take our own experience of human family as a point of contact, maybe for some of us it's all very positive because that by and large has been our experience of human family. Uh, maybe for others of us though it's um, a bit more negative and, and again, perhaps, because that's been our experience of human family. Uh, maybe for some of us, it's not that we're necessarily sitting on any particularly negative experience anywhere. It's just that for us, family feels much more in the basket of hard work and duty than it does of delight and joy. Uh, I read a quote from an old British author uh, during the week. She said of motherhood, she said, motherhood is the strangest thing. It can be like being one's own Trojan horse. Um, and, you know, maybe uh, some of us would say that same thing about family. Um, but, friends, whatever our experience of human family, whether largely positive or largely negative or a little bit of both and somewhere in between, uh, the hope today is that we will all grasp hold of the surpassing privilege that is offered to us and which becomes ours by virtue of being made part of the family of God. And that having grasped that, uh, we might evermore be committed to taking up towards each other the great privilege and the great responsibility of family love, which is both sincere and sacrificial. Because I think as you read through the New Testament, those are very often the kinds of words that get associated with the love that, that God's people are to have for one another as family, sincere sacrificial love. Now just one last thing to say by way of introduction, if you've been following the talks carefully, um, you, you might have begun to pick up there is something of a, a pattern kind of emerging from the series overall. So the first three weeks, giving joyful thanks to God for all his gifts, being humbly dependent on God's word and being humbly dependent uh, on God in prayer well, the three of those topics really have to do with the issue of us loving God. And then last week we talked about being engaged in gospel mission to the lost and that's really about us loving God's world. And then with our topic today, we're really turning back inwards and thinking, well, how do we love one another as God's people? I hope it won't surprise you that you kind of hear a pattern like that emerging from these talks because if there was just really one big thing that we wanted to be on about as a church, of course it would be love. But I think that structure just gives, uh, makes so much sense of so many of the things that the Bible says to us and so many of the things that the New Testament says to us about what we ought to be doing as God's people, to love God, to love God's people and to love God's world. So enough of uh, introduction on that, let's get stuck into... God's word, and we think about this topic of us being family, of the people of God being family, where in the Bible do you find that idea? 
Well, in the first place, we do find it all over the Old Testament, uh, where the people of God literally are a great big family of blood relatives. Do you remember the, the way that God promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 began? Uh, God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. And, and that's what we see happen through the rest of the book of Genesis. Uh, first, Abraham's son Isaac, and then Isaac's two sons, Esau and Jacob. And then Jacob, very complex story, uh, complicated family circumstances. But Jacob had 12 sons. And in time, each of them became the heads of families and, and really the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in the Old Testament, the people of God was the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel was the family of Abraham. And so God's people were a family, literally. And one of the ways you kind of see that understanding of things in the Old Testament implicitly is by the way that the word brothers gets used um, not only to refer to kind of siblings of the same father and mother, of course that is a way that the word brothers gets used, but actually as a way of speaking about the whole people of Israel kind of in general, at large. And so Deuteronomy 18, for example, Moses promises to the people of Israel that in the future God will send them another prophet just like him, and, and here it is, the Lord your God will raise up for you a, a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, literally from among your brothers. Or Psalm 133, the start of that psalm, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Literally, again, when brothers live together in unity. Um, believe me when I tell you that from our own family experience, I can testify to how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. But of course, the NIV translation is right. This psalm is not simply speaking about brothers in that narrow sense of the word to do with siblings of the same father and mother. No, it's speaking about just the people of Israel in, in general, the people of God at large, the kindred and kin of Abraham, his family. Now, I think it's this kind of understanding in the Old Testament that really forms the background to the way that the language of brothers or of brothers and sisters in the NIV translation that we've got here at church, that Old Testament really forms the background to the way that the language of brothers, brothers and sisters gets used in the New Testament. Um, and I think this is really significant. There are, there are other ways we could get at this theme of family, but we're going to really chase through on this, this language of brothers and brothers and sisters. I don't know if you kind of feel like you can think of a Christian person who uses that kind of term just whenever they greet another Christian person. Hello, brother. Hello, sister. I'm kind of out in the world, maybe. It's the person that just calls everyone mate, just indiscriminately. And, and every now and then, it does occur to you to wonder if perhaps they just don't know your name. You know that? And I, you know, it's a cheeky person at 8 o'clock this morning when I went into morning tea. He said, hello, mate. And I said, hello, cobber. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the Christian version, I just call everyone brother, sister. And uh, you just wonder every now and then, if you know, have they just, have they forgotten my name? Um, that's not what's going on when the New Testament uses this language. It is such a prominent theme. It's much more prominent than I realised it was at the start of preparing this topic. So a quick straw poll, uh, 22 New Testament letters from Romans through to Revelation, 
I wonder if you can think, how many times do you think the Greek words for brother or sister get used? And I'm going to ask you to commit on this. So we've got like, it's a pretty simple scale. And I know technically if you thought it was 50 or 100, or you'd need to put your hand up twice. But just go with the idea, you know. So uh, show of hands if you think it's 0 to 50. Everyone's too chicken to put their hand up yet. Uh, 50 to 100. There you go, some people. Thank you for being brave. 100 to 150. Okay, a bit more. 150 to 200. Anyone for over 200? Oh, it's never the last one, guys. Come on. <laughs> That's the foil. The last one's always the foil. No, it's 150 to 200. So 186 times in the letters. The only letter not to use these words at all is the letter of Titus, which I wasn't expecting, actually, thinking about what's in Titus. But you add in nearly 60 more uh, in the book of Acts, and then you throw in the Gospels, and it becomes nearly 350 times this language gets used. It's way more prominent than I realised it was at the start, just implicitly. And, and by virtue of the numbers alone, I think we ought to expect that there is something significant going on if this is a word that the New Testament writers just continue to use so much. Now, on one hand, of course, there are passages where the word is clearly used, really, with that Old Testament sense of things, and so it's being used by a Jewish person to speak of fellow Jewish people. Uh, it's often used that way in the book, in the Gospels, uh, which makes sense given where they fit. Uh, it's used quite regularly that way in the book of Acts, and even occasionally it's used that way in the epistles. A Jewish person speaking of their fellow descendants of Abraham, and will use that brother language. By far and away, the biggest way this language gets used in the New Testament, however, is to speak of people who are united to each other because they share a spiritual connection to Jesus. And Jesus himself is the one who makes that jump for us in the verses from Matthew 12 that Anne read for us before. He was talking to the crowd, teaching them about the kingdom of God and his mother and brothers appeared outside and they wanted to speak to him. And we know from elsewhere in the Gospels, they didn't just want to speak to him, they really wanted to come and take charge of him. Let me remind you how Jesus responded and just as you hear these words from Jesus again, try to take yourself back into that first century world and a culture where one's duty to family occupied a far more significant space than it often does in contemporary Australian culture and hear how shocking his words must have been. Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He called that into question. And then he points around at his disciples, not at his blood family who are out the door, he points around to his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, notice three things super quickly. First, the family in which Jesus speaks is now defined chiefly in relation to himself. Three times in three sentences, he speaks of my mother, my brothers, my sister. Despite the fully Jewish context of this passage, no longer is it the family of Abraham that counts. Now it is the family of Jesus that matters. Second, because it's now the family of Jesus that matters and no longer the family of Abraham, it's really clear that the family of which Jesus is speaking 
is defined now spiritually, not physically. Now, of course, someone from the physical family of Abraham can most definitely become part of the spiritual family of Jesus. In fact, at this point of the gospel story, every one of the disciples to whom Jesus pointed as he said these words would most definitely have ticked yes to both of those boxes. It's just that in time, what will become equally clear from these words of Jesus is that a person could be part of the physical family of Abraham and not part of the spiritual family of Jesus, or, wonderfully, for most of us here this morning, a person can be part of the spiritual family of Jesus despite never ever having been part of the physical family of Abraham. Uh, Third, to be a member of Jesus' family is ultimately to be a member of God's family. Uh, For this family of Jesus is defined at its root by the glorious fatherhood of his Father in heaven. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. And so the fellowship of the Christian family has two aspects to it, vertical and horizontal. But the, the vertical is primary. The reason we can be brothers and sisters to each other is first of all because we have God as our heavenly father and the Lord Jesus as our older brother. And if we will not have them, then neither will we have each other as brothers and sisters. But if we do have them, if by faith we receive Christ Jesus as Lord and we welcome God as our heavenly father, then remember Jesus' promise that in the rich mercy of God, we will not fail to receive a hundred times as much as whatever we may have left behind. Yes, even brothers, sisters, mothers, children. So, friends, to become a Christian, to trust in Christ, is to become part of a great family, to be brought into a great family. The family of God. Brothers and sisters alike. As I've been wrestling with this idea through the week, I wanted to share with you briefly two passages where I I just think it puts on wonderful, brilliant, beautiful display the incredible significance, the profound reality of standing together in this grace of God. Uh, The first is from the book of Acts. Uh, Ananias, who is a disciple... Uh, that the Lord Jesus calls to go and speak to a Jewish man named Saul. And in Acts chapter 6, 7 and 8, he has been a fierce enemy of the early Christian believers. In fact, when Stephen was stoned, the man that was there overseeing the whole operation and giving approval to it was Saul. He was a fierce enemy. Uh, Ananias kind of protested, Lord, you mustn't understand who this man is. And the Lord reassured him and said, no, I I know exactly who he is. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Israelites and the Gentiles. And so Ananias goes. Do you remember the very first word he spoke to Saul? Brother. Brother Saul. Is that not remarkable? Just what an astonishing welcome that is purely on the basis that Jesus has said, I've accepted him. And so this man, who who just until 
a day before was the enemy, the fierce, feared enemy is now brother Saul. It's not that I've forgotten your name. You are brother Saul. Instantly, he is held to be family. Uh, second example, uh, Philemon and Onesimus. This is the tiny little letter right at the, the kind of end of Paul's collection, uh, just one chapter, so you easily miss it. Uh, Philemon, a wealthy Christian householder in the city of Colossae, and uh, Onesimus, his troublesome runaway slave. And uh, in the time since leaving Philemon, kind of fleeing the house, and, and it seems stealing stuff as well, uh, Onesimus has come across the Apostle Paul used to be Saul and you know no surprise what happened there he heard the gospel in God's kindness he became a fellow believer in Christ and so now Paul writes back to Philemon about Onesimus and he writes back to Philemon knowing that Philemon could by all rights of law he could demand a great deal from Onesimus he has caused him a great deal of trouble and done a great deal of wrong but Paul urges him instead to see the far greater gain that comes from the fact that Onesimus is now a brother in Christ. And he says these words, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother. Again, can you just see the the remarkable transformation that comes about from an understanding of the gospel, that if we share Christ in common, we are family. What a precious gift is given to us by God in each other when we trust in the Lord. What a transformation this gospel mindset brings to the way that we might think about reconciling our relationships when they're broken. Well, there's just two snapshots that I found very compelling. I hope you find them the same. But now I want us to shift gears a little bit and just ask the question, if through our common trust in Christ we are family, and we are, we've proved that, with what kind of love are we now to love one another? Uh, the obvious answer in some ways is we're to love one another with family love, but that just kicks the can further down the road. What is family love according to the New Testament? Well, uh, as we look through the New Testament passages that teach about the quality of love we are now to have for one another as family, uh, I think for me two big ideas have stood out and I've already mentioned them. The first is that our love for each other is to be sincere. Uh, Romans 12 puts it very simply, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. And one another, that's kind of New Testament code for relationships with other believers. This is one another language is how we are to treat each other if we're in the Lord together. Be devoted to one another in love, honour one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. And so love must be sincere. That is, it must be genuine. It's not kindness just for show. It must be honest and it must have integrity. Maybe we could even say it must come from the heart. And so here's how the Apostle Peter puts it. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. In our context today, I suspect that a big danger of using this language about loving each other from the heart is that it could open up a way of using biblical words with unbiblical meanings. 
things. Uh, what I mean by that is that our culture at the moment is quite enamoured with the idea of, of kind of authenticity, the idea of being true to who you really are and to what you're really feeling. Kind of fakery is out, genuine is in. Now, it's not hard to see the problem this might lead to where we'd apply it out across different areas of the Christian life. Take prayer, for example. Uh, God doesn't want hypocritical religion. That is all outward show. He wants genuine faith that comes from the heart. Therefore, if at the moment I don't feel like praying, it's better for me not to pray than to engage in hypocrisy. I shouldn't just try to fake it till I make it. You can imagine that argument being mounted, perhaps, and, and you could build perhaps the same kind of argument for loving one another as brothers and sisters. I think the big problem with that, though, is it fails to take into account that, that kind of great corruption of our inner selves, of our old natural selves. And the Christian person who trusts in Christ for their very life and salvation is always under the instruction not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think what that means as we consider the love we are to show each other as the family of God is that love is more than a feeling. It's actually a whole set of attitudes and behaviours that are taught to us by God in the gospel. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Now about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. So the kind of love to which God calls us as the family of God, that is not something that comes to us naturally. It's actually something that God has to teach us at least one implication of that may be that if the things we do for others here at church that we think of in our mind as expressions of brotherly love of sisterly love but if those things have have only ever felt effortless and easy they may not yet be the kind of family love that is taught to us by god they may just be friendship Now, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with friendship. Friendship is a great gift from God to us. And inevitably, in a group this size, there will be people with whom we naturally get on better than others. And, but Christian family love is a much richer idea and a much bigger category than friendship. So it's more than a feeling. It's more than friendship. Remember Ananias and Saul. Remember Philemon and Onesimus. The family love which we are to have for each other is actually an imitation of the love that God himself has shown to us in Christ. And this is 1 John 4, the, the second passage that we read before. It's lovely in some ways not to preach this at a wedding. I feel like I've preached this passage so many times at weddings. And it's a great passage for a wedding, especially if it's two Christians who are getting married. But a wedding was not the first thing that John had in mind when he wrote the passage. He was just talking about the love that God's people are to show for each other. And his point is that the model for that, the very shape of that, is given to us by the gospel. 
because this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The two kind of essential truths that come from this, first of all, the love that God models and teaches us in the gospel is for those who are undeserving of it and who in and of themselves have no right to expect it. That's what we learn from the fact that Christ is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It it means he's a sacrifice for our sins that turns away God's wrath. That's what atoning means. I know we can find it very confronting to think about the fact that God would be angry at us, at people. It seems to go completely against everything. We would naturally want to tell people about the character of God. But God's love, which we most definitely do want to share with people, makes virtually no sense at all without an understanding before it of God's righteous anger. And this is John's whole point. The love that God has shown to us is demonstrated in the fact that God gave his son for us in spite of the fact that what we deserved from him was anger and wrath. There is the shape of love that God teaches us. And therefore, second, the love that God models and teaches us in the gospel is costly. It's not just sentiment. It is deeply practical. And it's deeply practical in a way that should be inconvenient to us. It it doesn't just fit in with life as we want to live it. It it does involve sacrifice. Perhaps a sacrifice of our time. Or a sacrifice of our resources. Maybe a sacrifice of our physical labour and energy. A sacrifice of what we find comfortable and familiar. But we love because God has first loved us and we love in the very same shape of the love that God has shown to us, which was deeply sacrificial. How extraordinary it would be to be loved like that among a whole community of people who are committed to loving like that. Is that not a community you just want to be part of? Of course it is. So let me finish uh, with some practical pastoral suggestions. I've just got two because of time. If we had the opportunity, I know there would be many others and and perhaps that's something to talk about over morning tea. Uh, First of all, though, no surprises, I hope, given uh, just about every other talk in this series so far, let's make this a matter of our regular and sustained prayer for ourselves, for each other, for our whole church family. Brotherly love needs to be taught by God. Let's ask God to teach us, like he taught the Thessalonians. It's so clear from the scriptures that this 
is a matter of utmost importance. Jesus said this would be the mark by which people would understand that we are his disciples. Do you remember that? By this will all people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. This is of utmost importance to Jesus. It's of utmost importance to God. And if we take those things to heart, then it should be of utmost importance to us. The way that we show practical love, brotherly love, sisterly love, as the family of God to each other. And so, friends, let's pray that God would teach us the great achievement of the gospel, that we have not just been brought into fellowship with himself and with his son, the Lord Jesus, but also with one another. Brother Saul. Let's pray that God would teach us to love one another as family, sincerely and sacrificially. Uh, second, I want to give one um, specific encouragement here that we might work hard to take up the ministry of showing hospitality to each other, uh, of sharing fellowship together over meals in each other's homes wherever possible, although I, I don't think that's the only way to do it. But uh, in the New Testament, it just is so clear that this kind of hospitality, we saw it in Romans 12, didn't we? This kind of hospitality, showing warm welcome of each other and engaging in fellowship over meals, that is so often a, a practical sign of fellowship in Christ, of accepting one another in Christ. Uh, maybe you could set yourself the goal of, you know, once every two months. We'll set aside one Sunday, clear it in the diary, and that'll be a Sunday where we try and invite some others from church over to share a lunch. Or we might invite them to a picnic and we'll share a lunch in a park. Doesn't We can do this in different ways, but we aim to show our welcome of each other, our acceptance of each other, our love in Christ by fellowship around meals. Uh, for those of us reading through the book of Acts uh, in Bible study groups this term, uh, that was one of the things I think lots of us found striking in when Paul came to Philippi, kind of doing Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul comes to Philippi and, and when people there were converted and they put their trust in Christ, and first of all, you've got Lydia, a uh, seller of purple cloth, and then you've got the jailer when the kind of earthquake hit and the chains blew open and no one left. Both of them, though, when they came to Christ... They trusted in him for their life and their salvation. Do you remember what they did? They invited Paul and his companions, the very people from whom they had heard the saving message of the gospel. They invited them back to their homes and they gave them a meal. Just as a practical expression of their acceptance of each other, just as they had received the gospel message, so they welcomed the gospel messenger. And, and, and they were family now and and I think for lots of us, as we were looking at that chapter, it was a striking example. In one of the groups that I'm in, uh, someone made the comment that, you know, that the warmth of that fellowship was very striking. They actually said these words. It's not quite family, but it's on the way, isn't it? Which is absolutely right. And yet, it is family. Because at the very end of that chapter, there was this sentence when Paul and Silas left the prison and they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters. 
and then they left. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've brought us not only into fellowship with yourself and with your Son, but into fellowship with one another. And thank you that you have made us, by the achievements of the gospel, family. We ask your help uh, that you would teach us what brotherly and sisterly love looks like, that it be both sincere and sacrificial. Uh, we long this for our own good and for the good of each other, for the good of the world that they might know we are Christ's disciples and ultimately for the glory of Christ, whose disciples we are. And we pray it in his name. Amen.